As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. One of the arguments for this is to say, look, uh, humans and animals share a common origin and therefore there's a brotherliness among them. Uh, This is kind of the Francis uh, of Assisi um, model. There's another way of looking at this of saying, uh, yes, common origin, but is there a a telos or a purpose within this system of what is this thing for? Um, And so I think ultimately I'm going to say that the purpose of the animal is for the glory of God, that God just likes them and enjoys them and gets a kick out of them, uh, whether or not they're conscientiously worshiping, but that within the very good system in which he created that um, a morality based on the divine command theory also and on the character of God allows for us to participate as an animal in the normal cycle of animals there. We get food or we get medicine or, you know, cosmetics we can put in our face and they won't make us go spotty. Um, so or we can go to a bullfight and en- somehow enjoy it. Um, so, as usual, I think we come back to this sort of enormous self-centeredness, anthropocentrism of humanity, that it's always us first and what's best for us. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians talking. Before we begin today's show, a reminder that we always want to hear what you think of our discussions. So please let us know your thoughts by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leaving messages on our Premier Unbelievable Facebook page or on Twitter at UnbelievableFE. Also, you could win our monthly prize book giveaway simply by signing up to our newsletter through registering on our website, which is premierunbelievable.com. So don't miss out for your chance to win. And now for today's discussion. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that tries to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. My name is Roger Bolton and today we're talking about animals, exploring biblical views, ethics and animal welfare and asking, do animals have souls? Do they have rights? How do we interpret what the Bible says when considering the question of animal consciousness? Is there a consensus on whether animals possess self-awareness? Well, let's get on to the debate. With me to discuss these topics are Joyce De Silva and Nathan Rittenhouse. Joyce is an ambassador emeritus for Compassion in World Farming, the leading charity advancing the welfare of farm animals worldwide. Her latest book, just published, is Animal Welfare in World Religion teaching and practice. And she's also a patron of the Animal Interfaith Alliance. Nathan Rittenhouse is a speaker, podcaster, and preacher. 
After double majoring in physics and philosophy and minoring in maths, Nathan studied theology and pastoral studies in several institutions and holds a Master of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Nathan has been preaching and speaking in the field of Christian apologetics at churches, campuses, and conferences for the last eight years. He is the co-founder of the podcast Thinking Out Loud. Welcome to both, and let's turn first to Joyce. Just before we start, I'd like to know about a little more about the Animal Interfaith Alliance. Um, what is it? I'd never heard of it. Well, it's a group which was started not by me, but it's a group of people of different faiths who all have a particular concern about the well-being of animals. And so they share a very nice um, magazine and they have a meeting at least once a year and, you know, share their views, their different faith views, um, but sort of feel united by their concern for animals and, you know, look to their own faiths for inspiration. Well, we're, go we're going to spend most of our time talking about the Christian faith and its relationship to animal issues. But do you find people, Muslims and Jews, through this Interfaith Alliance, face similar issues when they're discussing it, that they're dealing with, an, uh, dealing with faiths that on the whole have suggested that uh, man has, uh, if you like, uh, control or dominion over animals. Well, that is the traditional view, and it's certainly you can interpret the Bible in that way, certainly the Old Testament, that, you know, humanity has dominion over the animals. I think a lot of Christians are these days talking about stewardship and stewardship of animals and creation would be kind of dominion but softer and kinder um it's still a bit patriarchal i want to pursue this with you a little bit later but i was wondering whether you found in judaism and you also found in uh, islam some of those same if you like patriar patriarchal tendencies yes i think so um you know uh, God is very much seen as a father figure. And, you know, I think the other thing which you can say genuinely, that animals are part of God's creation. And, you know, I would feel that if you believe that animals are part of God's creation, then surely you should treat them with tenderness and care and all those things that we quite often forget to do. Well, I look forward to exploring that with you, but we're also joined um, uh, by Nathan Rittenhouse. Welcome to you as well. Uh, just before we start, can you tell us a little more about Thinking Out Loud? What is it? Sure. So Thinking Out Loud is a podcast and a, a ministry that works on honoring the complexity of big ideas. It focuses primarily on current events and Christian hope, and so it looks at the full range in which uh, Christian theology might speak to all categories of life so that we could live that as a more integrated and discipled and disciplined way. So this uh, type of engagement very much fits within that to think holistically about how we uh, think about all of creation, not just humans, but animals as well. And so looking forward to uh, in that vein and in that theme, continuing uh, this conversation and learning as we go. So thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. By the way, Joyce is, is in, Joyce in England, but you, Nathan, where are you, West Virginia? I am, yes, yes. I'm in the wild and wonderful woods of West Virginia. Uh, so coming to you this morning from the United States. Well, and thank you for getting up early. Uh, we do appreciate it. Uh, let us start then about the, we're going to basically discuss whether animals have souls in this first section. But of course, I suppose we'd better discuss what souls are 
because some people obviously question their existence, aren't sure what they are. I mean, Joyce, what what are souls from a Christian perspective? Oh, I'm sure you should be asking Nathan that, <laughs> not me. I'm not a theologian. But, I mean, a soul is the, the spirit, if you like, of each individual. Um, whether animals have souls or not doesn't seem to me fundamentally important because um, what they do have, for sure, is feelings and capacity to suffer and perhaps capacity for joy, which many of them perhaps don't uh, have in their lifetimes, at least not very much of. Um, so I don't think one's treatment of animals would hang on whether you believe they have souls or not. Uh, no, um, although there are quite a number of people who would like to know if their dogs are going to go to heaven um, and don't want to be parted from them. I mean, Nathan, what do you think a soul is? And do you think it's an exclusive, uh, if you like, component of humanity? So I, I do think it's an exclusive component of humanity. I think anyone who's asked what a soul is is having flashbacks to some intro philosophy class in which Plato was inflicted upon them. Um, but I'm, I'm in agreement that with Joyce that there would be a spiritual component to that. There would be uh, a moral and an immortal, an Im immortality usually associated with the concept of the soul. Uh, though I don't think animals do have souls, I'm with Joyce in the sense that I don't think you need to have a soul in order to be significant or even to be sacred. So the, I, I don't, and, and other um, animal rights, you know, I think Tom Regan here on his book on animal rights says that the question of a soul is sort of secondary. Um, to the conversation about rights. However, as you say, uh, many people want to know about their pets. So I do believe that in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be animals, but I don't know on what uh, grounding we could say that it's going to be your specific dog that uh, shows up to greet you there. So the, the jury's out on that, but I think there is a... Yes, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, so if anybody's listening to this and uh, faces a future without that dearest dog. We can't give them any reassurance at this point. Joyce, no, at, no. At this no, point, no, no I, I don't well, have a, I mean, a... I don't know anything. Um, but it's quite interesting that there's an implication in the Muslim holy book, the Quran, that animals will also be resurrected, as it were, on the final day. And of course, in Buddhism and Hinduism, you get the idea that an animal if it lives a good life as an animal, can be reincarnated perhaps as a human. And that if human lives a bad life, they might come back as an animal. Um, so there are so many different views about this. Um, and of course, you'll find people who will say that when their dear pet died, that they, you know, they saw kind of vision of it and so on. Who knows? I mean, I think these things are unknowable, <laughs> and each person probably has their own truth and their own belief about it. But of course, I mean, it's just like when you grieve when your dearly beloved dog dies. So you grieve when your dearly beloved relative or loved person dies. Um, and, you know, who's to say which is the stronger grief? Um, I think that one of the things, obviously, which, which strikes me when I'm approaching this issue is that We've done, obviously, and understandably, a massive amount of research on humans and how they respond and on the human brain or whatever. And when it comes to issues such as animals and their consciousness or their ability to feel pain, uh, there uh, was anyway a lot less. I remember when I was doing a hunting debate 20, 25 years ago, there was a big debate in the UK about whether hunting should be banned or not. And a lot of people, particularly those who live in cities, wanted it banned. 
And we were trying to say, well, can animals, if they're being hunted, are they anticipating pain in some ways? And then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And what struck me then was the, the almost absence of any research into whether animals felt pain. Has that changed dramatically over the past, say, 25 um, years, do you think, Nathan, that we now have a much greater understanding of what animals feel? Yeah, and that's and that's part of a long trajectory. I think people would trace all the way back to maybe Descartes or even farther back into maybe um, Augustine based on, you know, Aquinas and Augustine based on Aristotle of looking at animals more mechanistically and at some point in history saying even that they didn't feel pain at all. So um, we're on a long upward swing here. I think very, very few people now would make that claim that pain isn't part of that. And now we're even into the research on the depth of desire of belief. Do animals have belief? Um, and the complexness of their consciousness there. So um, Joyce might know the the studies more than that, but um, yes, I think we've we've come a long way on attempting to understand as best we can uh, what animals are experiencing and what they know and think about their own experiences. Uh, and Joyce, what do we know about animal consciousness, or should I say, self consciousness? And how would we know? I mean, most people would say if they have a very very close animal uh, pet a dog, whatever, that the dogs could sense their moods and, and oh, respond to those sorts of things. But is there a, a big jump from that to say that in some ways they are self-conscious? Well, there are experiments being done to try and prove that. And some people say animals that pass the mirror test um, have a consciousness. And there are things like, even if you get an ant, if you put a blob of blue paint on the forehead of an ant and put it in front of a mirror, it will get its leg and try and get the blue paint off its own head. So it knows that the being in the mirror is it, which is quite interesting. Um, they've done experiments with pigs where um, the pig um, will have, um, say, a bowl of food hidden behind something and it will see that happening. And it will know from seeing the film of that happening where that food is and will immediately go there. So, I mean, there are all sorts of things, um, experiments being done and, you know, actual physiological um, experiments. And so, for example, in the last sort of 20 years, they discovered that fish have the same nociceptors, pain receptors that humans do. Um, so, you know, people who thought that fish didn't feel pain are now known to be incorrect, um, and they do feel pain. And so that has implications, you know, for fishing and the whole massive worldwide fishing industry as well. Uh, Nathan, you know. Nathan, do you think there's an old archaeology, I think about archaeology, people used to say, um, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. Here, are we dealing with a situation where there's an absence of evidence because, frankly, we haven't looked in the past. We haven't thought it worthwhile. We're so preoccupied with ourselves as a species. We didn't really think much about animals and therefore didn't devote a lot of resources to discovering what they felt and, and so on. Yeah, and, and I think part of that is a, a look at the formation of societies and partly the fact that for much of human history, just staying alive has been the fundamental pursuit of what it means to be human. And so we didn't spend a lot of time in some of these other questions of should I or shouldn't I. It's I do and therefore I live. But we are at a different uh, point in time now. 
I would also just want to interject here something that I think is an important reminder that particularly looking from a Christian perspective at the the concept of consciousness as it relates to value or even souls is that um, most Christians, well, I think all Christians would say that an infant or someone with a, a mental handicap or who can't express themselves consciously in complex language or you know some of the other things we associate with consciousness still does have a soul. And so I think the Christian doesn't necessarily see a link between consciousness and soulishness um, and that's just to keep in the back of our minds. Uh, can I ask you just to pause it at this point to find out, uh, we talked about you know, the lack of interest in the past in many ways in, in discovering uh, what animals actually think and feel. How did you get involved with choice? And I'll come and ask Nathan the same way. What was the, what was the thing that made you really want to explore this area? Well, I could say, let's get back to when I was five years old. And we lived in the countryside in Ireland. And our neighbor had a sheep farm. And one of his ewes had triplet lambs, and she couldn't cope with three lambs. And the neighbor lent a lamb to myself and my brother, who was seven. And so we had a pet lamb. We knew he was temporary. So Patrick was temporary. He was absolutely delightful. And we religiously fed him his bottles of milk, etc. And then the day came when he had to go back. And my big sister was about 10 years older than me, said, well, you know, you can't really expect his mother to recognize him, which was a bit shattering because I had thought he was going back to his mummy. Um, and she said, you'll probably eat him for lunch on Sunday. And of course, we had lamb for lunch on Sunday. And I pushed my meat to the side of my plate. And my father said, eat your meat, Joyce. He was a great believer in meat. And I said, well, I can't. It might be Patrick. And he said, don't be silly, eat your meat. And, you know, I had no concept at the age of five of vegetarians or anything else. So I was forced to eat it very reluctantly, thinking it might be Patrick. And I think that kind of started me on the road. But many, many moons later, <laughs> I read Gandhi's autobiography. And he had quite a lot about vegetarianism in there. And that made me a vegetarian. I, I... And may be interested in the whole issue. And how about you, Nathan? Where where did you really get this profound, profound interest in animal sensitivities, if that's the right word? Mm. Well, in, in similar stories to Joyce, I, I had those memories of warming up a little lamb by the stove in the kitchen and um, lived, I live in a heavily forested area. And actually, we had a, a lamb, Joyce, who ended up thinking it was a dog because it, it lived with the puppies. And uh, <laughs> so good story there. But um. No. So what happened then is, and I think this is a larger part of the conversation, is I recognized that there was a, a Greek trend of, of Greek philosophy slipping into Christianity that had very much a dualistic approach to the fullness of what it meant to be a physical being and a spiritual being that almost separated the spiritual as good and the physical as bad. And I just didn't see that anywhere in scripture. And so for me, it was the pursuit of a reintegration to say, what does it mean to take physical creation seriously and to recognize myself as a physical creature embedded within an ecology and to be a creature within that ecology as a Christian. And so there's that dual nature to what it means to be a human. I often jokingly refer to myself as a carbon-based life form made in the image of God. Um, both parts of those are true. And so to recognize the ecological embeddedness of what it means to be a human among other uh, creatures and to do that with integrity as a disciple of Jesus that's actually the direction that I was coming into this uh, conversation. And I wake up every morning and feed my animals and uh, smile and laugh and 
my son was out there scratching a pig with a pine cone because it loves it. Um, you know, so I, I live, there are deer in my yard every morning. I see the birds and the hawks and, um, you know, I, I live very much in, the, uh, in this, this full creation. So, um, it's unavoidable. But, but you're not, but you're not, a, but you're not a vegetarian. Unlike Joyce, you're not a vegetarian. I, and that's right. Yeah. And so unlike Joyce, I'm not a vegetarian. Yeah. So jo- actually, so, I'm not. Sorry, sorry, Joyce. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm not a vegetarian. I'm a vegan, actually. <laughs> ah, right. Forgive oh, me. So. Good clarification. <laughs> Let me get this straight. It's my ignorance. Let me get this straight. Nathan, you eat meat, yes? I do. Right. Um, I've just, just briefly a moment to stay on the, the changing attitudes. I, I go back to my father, who um, I love dearly and was the gentlest of kindless of of men. Uh, you know, he was almost about what well, he was a pastorist part of his life. But I remember him showing me a little litter of kittens and uh, saying, which one would I like? And I picked one very small, and then he took the rest and drowned them. Oh, that's what my grandfather used to and, do. And how could my dad, I look back and think, lovely man. But they did. And your granddad did that. Yep, yeah. yeah. He had so many cats in his house, in the country house, and and but yes, the kittens were drowned. Yeah. Uh, well, can we sort of start to uh, look at the biblical background for the attitude towards uh, animals? And uh, people will obviously point to Genesis when they start, and those quotes uh, which say, for example, uh, Genesis one, I think twenty six to twenty eight. Then God said. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So very clearly, humans rule over animals. And uh, I say in Genesis a little bit later, in the second chapter, I, just as I gave you the green plus, I'll now give you everything. Um, and a lot of people have used that to say, basically, well, though we have a responsibility to uh, to our animals, they are there for us to use as we feel fit. Nathan, how do you respond to that? Because you, as we've just heard, eat meat and obviously um, see that as a perfectly normal and thing to do. Hmm. Yeah, so I would, I would not um, go so far as to say we can do with whatever we want with them as we see fit. Uh, there's some very... Um, we don't have to go into the gruesome details. You can read about those. Uh, many people have illustrated that for us in um, many different works on animal rights. I would say that the one of the arguments for this is to say, look, hu- uh, humans and animals share a common origin, and therefore there's a brotherliness among them. Uh, this is kind of the Francis uh, of Assisi um, model. There's another way of looking at this, of saying, uh, yes, common origin but is there a, a telos or a purpose within this system of what is this thing for? Um, and so I think ultimately I'm going to say that the purpose of the animal is for the glory of God, that God just likes them and enjoys them and gets a kick out of them, uh, whether or not they're conscientiously worshiping, but that within the very good system in which he created that um, a morality based on the divine command theory also and on the character of God allows for us to participate as an animal in the normal cycle of animals there. So there's a, a both and nature to that of, I think, treating an animal in the fullness and respecting it in the fullness of what it is that it is, shouldn't treat a pig like a chicken, um, and vice versa, that there's a difference there, but there's a, a fundamental difference in kind between humans and animals, while at the same time, we are part of uh, the physical creation. So um, we'll, we'll leave it at that, and Joyce will have, or maybe a comment, and we can push further into it. 
Well, Joyce, in your book, uh, Animal Welfare in World Religion, and which deals with the attitudes as, as a number of different religions, but when you deal with Christianity, you, you identify these two traits or two schools, if you like. One is the, I'm never I'm not sure how to say Thomist, uh, and the other is the Franciscan. Could you, could you just explain those two, two, te two tendencies or views to us? Well, uh, Thomas Aquinas, who is a really important theologian in Christianity, he seemed to uh, take the sort of Aristotelian view that animals are there, you know, to be used by us, you know, for whatever way we need them. And even Martin Luther said animals are made for the sake of man. Um, whereas St. Francis called animals his brothers and sisters and did everything he could to make their lives better. Apparently, he used to, if he saw lambs going to the slaughterhouse, he would rescue them. If people brought captured fish to him, he would take them back to the lake and put them back in the lake. And we all know that he did a deal with the wolf of Gubbio, so it would stop attacking the townsfolk as long as they fed it. Um, or well, that's what the story says. Um, but it's interesting because, I mean, this strand, which seems to be quite common both in Catholic and Protestant um, faiths, um, you get John Wesley, who quite definitely said that he felt animals would share in the resurrection. Um, and, you know, David Clough, who's a modern theologian, chair of theology at Aberdeen University, which is a big center of theology, says, you know, we are fellow creatures of God with the animals. So there are so many different views. And obviously, I would hope that Christians would adopt the fellow creature view. Do you see that growing? Of course, St. Francis came, uh, what, I guess it's around two or three hundred years before, as it happened, Martin Luther. But do you see in the 20th century and 21st century, uh, a Christian, um, a very considerable Christian movement, if you like, to the Franciscan position? You can still find the other position being put. You know, there's an evangelical website called Gospel Way, which very much says animals are there for us to use as we like. We can do what we want with them. But I think that will be a majority view. And, you know, I think Nathan's view that obviously we should treat them correctly. And just because I just want to make clear, just because I'm a vegan, I'm not expecting everybody else to be a vegan. That's a personal choice. And what I would say, and Nathan would probably agree, is if you're going to eat animal products, well, eat the ones that have come from animals that have had a decent life and haven't been kept in disgusting factory farm conditions. Nathan, we've talked about uh, these two tendencies within Christianity, Thomist and, and Franciscan, but actually, is there a more obvious issue here that uh, nowadays that a lot of people who uh, there's a fundamental difference between the country and the town and the city and in the understanding of animal welfare for example and lots of people in his cities or whatever see me wrapped up uh, divorced from uh, from the animal that gave it or whatever and therefore uh, don't understand uh, the reality of country life and so on and often you know you can see this disbelief but you're a you're a farmer, you grow animals, and then you take them to the slaughterhouse and so on. We can't understand this. Do you think there's this, this, if you like, um, gap between us, between, uh, and in the past, people who live close to animals, and people now often only feel that they find at least some of them wrapped up in sections in the meat section of the supermarket? 
I think that's certainly the case. And the, so the, the geographic and demographic uh, fluctuation is certainly there when it applies to farm animals. But we should also point out um, the difference in the last hundred years of pets and how many people, their primary animal interaction is with, say, a house cat, for example, and not with a bear or a coyote or a deer. And so we've, even if you look at maybe a video from the Oxford Center for uh, Animal Ethics, it's talking about eating meat. All of the, all of the animals in, in those videos are, you know, big, sad-eyed cats. Uh, well, nobody's eating cats, one that I know of, for sure. Um, but no, but pe- people are eating dogs. I mean, classically, I've, well, I always put this case, in Japan, they eat dogs, and it doesn't seem to be a problem. You suggest eating a dog in this country or a horse, you probably get lynched, actually. Uh, so, I mean, that, uh, uh, to a Japanese, this would be slightly strange to make the distinction. Yeah, but that does point to some of the, you're asking, has there been an evolution in, in the way of thinking here? And a dog has been a source of protein. I mean, even if you look at the, uh, the American um, frontier history, uh, that was the main, when Lewis and Clark explored the, the middle of the, what's now United States, they took dogs to trade as food sources with the natives. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at, has there been a change? I think there's plenty of um, historical evidence to say yes. Well, I think Amundsen famously, uh, if I get this right, uh, succeeded because he didn't talk to the, uh, talk, talk, take uh, horses to the South Pole, uh, like Robert uh, Falcon Scott tried to do, um, but he took huskies, which he then ate <laughs> on the way. Uh, anyway, uh, so we've discussed whether or not there are souls. There's, the, the jury is out on that. We've discussed uh, whether the divisions, if you like, between uh, biblical thought and Christian thought on these issues. In the next part of our discussion, when we come back after the break, we're going to, I'm going to start by talking about rights and whether and animals have rights and from whence they come. And if you'd like, uh, if you're listening and uh, watching and you'd like to contribute, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, don't forget you can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch uh, via social media at, at unbelievable, capital F, capital E for Twitter or facebook.com forward slash premier unbelievable. Uh, that's if you want to interact on our Facebook page. Uh, still a great deal to talk about, and I'll be rejoining Joyce De Silva and Nathan Rittenhouse uh, in a moment. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong, because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Well, welcome back to part two of this discussion about whether animals have souls. Uh, this is the Unbelievable podcast. 
Uh, with me are Nathan Rittenhouse and Joyce De Silva. And we're going to discuss this, start the second section by talking about the question of animal rights, if they have them, and where do they come from? And could I start with you, Joyce, on this? Um, I suppose there are two ways of looking at rights, aren't there? A, a Christian or a religious might say, rights essentially are given to us by God. Others who don't have a belief, which, well, how would they say? Is this something simply which society decides, well, it makes sense to give this section of society or animals rights uh, because it's in our self-interest? Where, what rights do you think animals have and where do you think those rights come from? Well, it's quite interesting because Andrew Lindsay, who, as you know, is an Anglican, um, believes in theos rights, God rights, the rights of animals based on the right of God to have his creatures treated properly. And that would be one way that a Christian or any believer could look at it. Um, I tend not actually to use the word rights very much. I mean, I would say an animal is a right to be treated with the utmost consideration and care and concern so that it can live his or her life in the most natural way and find joy in their lives if that's possible and, you know, not be subjected to human whims and human cruelties, etc. No, but that's surely, that's, that's you wanting animals to live in a certain way it doesn't mean that the animals have rights, do they? I mean, often when one's talking about rights issues, you say they're coupled with responsibilities. And it's difficult to say to about animals that animals have responsibilities. And I understand the argument which says anything created by God uh, that has a special relationship and has rights, as it were, uh, divinely given. But if you don't accept that view, I'm not sure whether the word right is appropriate when it comes to animals. Nathan, do you, where do you stand on animal rights? So, so I'm, I'm with you on that in the sense that it's very difficult to ethically ground the concept of animal rights in the ground. I say that saying that it's hard to build a bottom-up from nature concept of animal rights. Um, now, so while I would say that animals don't have rights, I would very much say that humans do have responsibilities. So I would put the moral uh, decision on the human not on the animal. And as um, Joyce has pointed out, um, uh, Andrew Lindsay has made this case. And, and I want to say that, that Joyce is, you know, in, in her book, her, her style here is very good in the sense that I find Peter Singer's concept of animal, well, he actually, Peter Singer doesn't like the word rights either. Um, his idea of animal liberation, he doesn't use the word rights in that um, from a, a utilitarian perspective. It's very difficult for me to get behind what he has to say there. Um, also on the deontological uh, naturalistic ethics, again, uh, it's difficult. So I think your best bet for establishing some sort of um, well-being for animals outside of a strict naturalism is to do a theological uh, direction. So I think Joyce is right in trying to get people to be consistent with their faith. And now, obviously, we would disagree on what that looks like. Sorry, I interrupted you, but just a bit on responsibilities. I understand where, in terms of our own self-interest, we should treat animals well. But if you say we have a responsibility, from whence does that responsibility come? A responsibility for, to what? You see, if you took a purely, I don't know if the word utilitarian be, you would say, if you treat animals badly, 
Uh, ultimately, they may die out. They won't be available for food or etc. It's better to treat them well, feed them well anyway, because they taste better, etc., etc. So you could put forward a, a set of practical reasons why you would treat animals well. You go a step further by saying we have a responsibility. Where does the responsibility derive from? Yes, excellent. And so that's right out of uh, the Genesis passage that you read is to say that the rule or the dominion that humans had is a vice regency, not an ultimate one uh, on its own basic merit. So it is granted by God. So I'm very much in that line of following. Um, Psalm 8 lays this out very well. It's it's an ordered hierarchy where when I consider the heavens work of your fingers, you know, we start up all the way down, then man, and then you gave him ruler over the flocks of the field and the beasts of the earth and the fish of the sea. So humanity is sandwiched in between and our responsibility comes from a moral dictate to be a a good representative of what God wants to see happen on his earth. So, yes, I unashamedly point up for my morality in how I see oughtness in the creatures um, around and beneath me. So, Joyce, is that your view, that animals in themselves don't have rights, but we have God-given responsibilities in our treatment of them? Well, I have to say, I'm not a utilitarian like Peter Singer, and I'm not really a great believer in rights because I'm not sure that it gets us anywhere. I mean, even human rights. You know, we've developed this huge list of human rights, which is still evolving. I mean, women had no rights until recently. And, you know, what about the rights of the people subject to the slave slavery and the slave trade and so on? So I'm not sure that rights actually gets us anywhere, but I think responsibilities is a good one. Um, and I think we have responsibilities just because we're so powerful. You know, we've created all these instruments um, that we can use to make animals' lives miserable and some human lives miserable too. You know, we've developed guns and arms and factory farms and vivisection laboratories and all sorts of things, bullfights and so on. So we created these things because we think we do rather well out of them. Um, we get food or we get medicine or, you know, cosmetics we can put in our face and they won't make us go spotty. Um, so, or we can go to a bullfight and en somehow enjoy it. Um, so, as usual, I think we come back to this sort of enormous self-centeredness, anthropocentrism of humanity, that it's always us first and what's best for us. And... I don't, I don't see rights really being terribly helpful. I understand people saying, well, animals also have a right to this and that and the other. And I would say, of course, they have a right to be treated well and to be cared for. But intrinsic rights, I'm not sure that it helps terribly. So your emphasis is on responsibility. But is that, by the way, just in parentheses, is that a responsibility um, if you like, a God-given responsibility, not just for animals, but for all of creation. Obviously, responsibility for the human beings. Now you extend that responsibility to animals and the way we treat them. Others would extend that, of course, to the environment and what we hand on subsequently. In other words, it's a, it's a sort of a, a unified responsibility for creation that we have taken on. Is that something uh, that you would you would share? Yes, I, I, I would absolutely say that, you know, if if you believe that you have a God-given right to care for God's creation, then obviously animals are a huge part of that creation. 
But, you know, so is the forest and so is the river and so is the ocean. Nathan, do you see that as a as a continuum, if you like? You can't stop and say, we've re- responsibility just for human beings. You can't just extend it to animals. Actually, you have to stand, You have to extend it for all of creation. Well, I think there's, yeah, even in not looking at it as a, if, if you weren't a Christian looking at it, I think just in the ecological, it's not a good idea to cut down all of the trees around you and destroy all the animals, you know. So there's a pragmatic element to that. But yes, I see that um, extending to, and, and as I said in the introduction, um, my desire here is for a full integration and, and a wholeness to this. So, um, you know, how we think about silviculture and the management of our forest and all of that is a very, um, I think Aldo Leopold, you know, was famous for saying, you know, a conservationist is made by the decision one makes while holding an ax. Uh, so he's not saying don't hold the ax, but he's saying the conservationist um, is thoughtful about the decisions that they make while holding the tool as Joyce has pointed out, that we've manufactured some wild tools, if we can crudely call it that. And there's a sense in which our technological advancement calls for uh, more serious moral thought um, because we're always in danger of outrunning um, ourselves morally with the, the tools and the weapons that we develop. So, you know, we can go back and say God-given rights. Well, you know, the U.S., uh, you know, our Bill of Rights is founded on this, you know, idea of equality before a creator, and we fall gloriously short of that. Uh, many times. So just because you declare there to be rights doesn't mean that you always live up to them. Um, so <laughs> there's a sense in which just because you declare the right, uh, I think Joyce is making the case, doesn't mean that it necessarily happens or that people sense it as an obligation. It's just, I think that if you dispense through the idea of God, um, the, the hu- rights become a, a human concept, a human-rated concept. I think when you move then, but the question to the question of responsibilities that we have as if insofar as we are the superior, is that the right word? No. Um, the most developed, <laughs> no, all right, the most developed life force. However, anyway, we have been, with it, we seem to be uh, the first life force that is self-conscious uh, as far as we know, and that with that we inherit specific responsibilities to the rest of creation. Even if you don't take a biblical placed response, you, if you like, have the response of the most apparently advanced form of life so far for the rest. Are we, we're into that territory, Joyce. Well, Are we, why did you say no? Why, why do you say no with such force? Well, I mean, we can create rifles and bombs and so on. But, you know, if I asked you to create a honeycomb, you might have a problem. Um, yes. And yeah, yeah. if I asked you to speak loudly and so summon... 100 miles away could hear you. You probably couldn't, but a whale probably could do that. Um, So, you know, we're very um, kind of technically, we're we're good at that stuff. But whether the rest of us, you know, psychologically and morally is as advanced as our technical prowess, I think that's uh, unlikely to be true. Yeah, I just wonder why this has taken so long. Near, not far from where I live, um, John Newton, who um, wrote Amazing Grace, uh, was the curate. And I had understood that he um, became a Christian and remained for a short while a slave trader as a captain. In other words, the penny didn't quite drop. And then, of course, he became a passionate uh, opponent of slavery and so on. And I had assumed that him becoming a Christian and opposing slavery would be automatic. Well, it is, and of course, when you look at the 2,000 years since Jesus, well, I mean, it's taken us some time, and you wonder whether what we're passing through now 
um, in terms of a greater sensitivity on the whole uh, to animal, the way we treat animals, is a passing phase or is something which is marks a real development of thought? Is there any way of knowing that, Nathan? I mean, when, for example, when you look at your colleagues around in, in West Virginia, evangelicals and others, I mean, how do they respond to these ideas? Mm. Yeah, so I, I, I want to start by saying that the, when you say it's, it, it took a long time for the penny to drop, is that very few people live consistently within their own worldview. We're oftentimes very much borrowing other people's ideas, and that includes a whole realm of um, economic considerations and all kinds of things that that set us up, and maybe we'll get into this more when we get into the, the controversy side. But um, yeah, there, there is a growth. So the, the question, I think, is where, what's the trajectory of this? And Joyce uses the phrase in one of her um, talks saying, you know, the, the New Testament is a bit of a desert when it comes to the treatment of animals. So if you look at a group of people who are using the New Testament specifically as a guide for their moral and ethical considerations, we're, we're essentially asking the question, where do we get this oughtness from? And the New Testament does make references to animals, but usually those are making some other point. So I think that the concept of what is the proper oughtness here that Christians very much believe in um, doesn't have the moral trajectory baked into Christian theology in the same way that, for example, Jesus out Jesus never made an anti-slavery speech, but clearly laid out principles that would lead to um, that being an abhorrent uh, Christian idea. I, I can't quite get there and say that the same arc and same trajectory is is laden in there on animal rights. So that would be the reason that I would say um, I don't think it's an inevitable trajectory that we're on from a theological uh, standpoint. Well, I mean, some of us thought that we were on an inevitable trajectory of liberal democracy becoming triumphant, and I think we've um, learned our lesson on that one. But I mean, just before we move on to this question of how we actually behave and our responsibilities to animals, um, are we being too, am I being a bit too pessimistic uh, there, Joyce? Do you think that actually there is a major change which would be very difficult to reverse in our attitudes towards the treatment of animals? I see two pathways. You know, at the moment, you find a lot of animals being genetically engineered for laboratory use, and they're going to be genetically engineered for farm use as well. And we know that some of those experiments have appalling um, consequences in the early stages of their the development anyway with um, you know, animals being worn with massive deformities and, you know, inherent suffering. So there's, you know, there's a whole lot of people who want to farm animals even more intensively, genetically engineer them to be better models for human disease and so on. Um, but I think the whole question of animal sentience, their capacity to feel, to have, suffer pain or to experience joy, I think that is becoming so strong now. I don't think it's going to go away. But I do see a kind of conflict between these ways of seeing animals in our lives. Can we just uh, I say the third part, I want to talk to you specifically about issues such as factory farming and um, hunting with dogs and uh, force feeding of geese and fishing and so on. But just to conclude this section, could I ask you about um, both of you about one of the perhaps the most troubling areas, um, which is where we genuinely believe there is a medical breakthrough possible, which will relieve mm, suffering on a large scale of human being. 
But we think, or scientists, doctors say, we must test these on animals. Have we the right to test things on animals if in the process they probably will suffer? And can you make this argument which say their suffering is worth the benefit to humankind, Nathan? So um, just one caveat of to, to cheer you up a little bit. I think this is one place where technology is making a massive improvement. In fact, I have a cousin who um, is doing PhD work on uh, the reproduction of, of, of human cells in the sense that you could do testing without using a sentient animal. So, and animals turn out not to be wonderful proxies for humans anyway when it comes to cosmetics and medicines and that sort of thing. So I think there will be a sense in, uh, I'm, I'm not dodging the question here. I'm just giving you a little hope that I think there will be other ways in which um, that will be phased out as a necessary thing. Um, this is a hard one to say, but I think the the answer is yes, that there will be times in which inflicting suffering upon an animal for the sake of a human is morally justified. Um, and thinking through this as a Christian, I was, uh, and I know there's a difference of interpretation here, but you do have the issue of uh, Jesus casting the demons out of the man into the pigs who then ran and drowned themselves in the lake. And so whether or not you want to blame that on demonic activity or what, uh, there is a sense in which Jesus did seem to favor the spiritual well-being of one individual over the physical outcome of many animals. And so if we pump that back up another level into what is God's overall intent and the way in which God himself used animals for the sake of humanity, I think there's a case to be made for that. Now, what's necessary there and a whole slew of caveats that I would uh, cautiously put brakes around Moving forward, I think those are live conversations, but I don't want to categorically rule that out as a Christian. Choice, would you rule that out? Would you say there aren't any circumstances in which it's justifiable to inflict pain on an animal, knowing that the potential anyway is something that would reduce pain for a significant number of human beings? Yeah, a bit like Nathan, I think, you know, there are so many technical advances that the use of animals may become pretty redundant, but let's go back to your question. Um, I find this very difficult because I myself have taken antibiotics occasionally. I know they've been tested in animals, so I'm not living up to my, I would say, th theoretically, I can't justify causing animals pain just so that I can live or my children or grandchildren could live. But I know that if my family are ill, I will want to get them the medicine that will cure them. So I'm completely conflicted about this. I'm um, not consistent. I, theoretically, I can't justify the infliction of pain on other beings. Um, but I know that for most people, you know, as usual, humans first, family first, etc. that most of us would not be consistent. Um, it's it's a really tricky question. But, you know, also just to say over the last 100 years or so, I mean, there have been horrendous experiments done on animals for no good reason at all. Um, you know, not just testing bleach and things in rabbits' eyes and revolting things like that. I remember being at a conference where a really, you know, top professor told us about the experiments he did on rats. Um, and at the end of his talk, he said, of course, this is absolutely not applicable to humans. I thought, so why did you do it? 
You know, it's not going to run curing, go around curing rats, is it? So you're not opposed in principle, but you, you're very selective. You're saying that, you know, cosmetics or things like that are no way. There has to be an absolute demo- real possibility of significant improvement in human lives on a large scale to justify the, the use of animals in, in experimentation in that way. And presumably, will, with that, would go a responsibility to minimize their suffering as far as possible. And if you can't, you ask questions. Can I just say, I'm not justifying it. I'm saying I will justify it for the people that I love and care for or myself because I'm self-centered and family-centered. But I can't make a sort of total justification for it because it will cause animal suffering. And I want to see animal suffering minimized in the world. And Nathan, you're obviously offering us hope that, that it will no longer be necessary or as necessary. Presumably, like Joyce, you'd rule out the use of animal experimentation in terms of anything other than a, a real possibility of the improvement of, of really appalling conditions that will inflict pain on human beings. Well, so I started out optimistic there on the technological side. On the human side, though... Um, let me be a bit more pessimistic in the sense that uh, it's, you know, we we have fairly well-developed UN, you know, rights for humans, and we don't treat a lot of humans very well for our own gain and good. So the, the, the sense that we would expand this to animals is is a wonderful thought. But if we look at globally right now, not 100 years ago, but right now, um, the pleasures that are afforded my life based off of the potential suffering inflicted on other humans we have to deal with that and recognize the brokenness of humanity. I would, so from Joyce's perspective, though, I don't think she's being inconsistent. I think she's being a creature. When I see a fox run by with a baby groundhog in its mouth, um, the fox is taking care of and protecting its family. That's what it means to be a predator species in a prey world and to survive um, by the fitness of it. That would be the natural creaturely way to go forward. So in one sense, we're sitting here having a discussion about the treatment of animals that it's important to recognize the context of this conversation is between three people who are not hungry. Uh, go a couple, go a week without eating, and then think about whether or not you want to eat some eggs, um, and if you had them at hand to get them. So there's a sense in which there's a double-edged sword to this technological world, um, but we're living in a in a new time, and so some of our um, privileges that we have to even discuss these things are different than they have been at any point in history. So I'm uh, reticent to critique the past too deeply. But are you saying this, and it probably it's true, I'm sure it's true, I guess, actually in the end, we're predators. We have, uh, we've developed in a way that we don't need to, we can disguise that. But ultimately, we'll be predators if necessary. I used to teach in a school, and when the children knew that I didn't eat meat, etc., they would say, yeah, but miss, if you were on a desert island, there was just you and a rabbit, never mind how the rabbit would live there. Um, you know, would you kill the rabbit and eat it? And I said, honestly, I don't know. I'd like to think I wouldn't, but I might. And Nathan, you'd eat the rabbit. I'm afraid I probably would. Would you eat the so, rabbit? So I think this gets back into, and there's a theological background to this, but I do have my, my eye, human eyes are on the front of our head. Like all other predators, we do have canine teeth. We do have a digestive system um, that is uh, omnivorous. Um, so I think there is, baked within the created order of a God who declared it all to be very good, I think you do see um, the, the, the abnormal thing is not to eat meat. It's to believe that there's a moral construct around it. 
that would be the the unique thing that I see as a Christian bringing into this is that we would even put it in the category of morality in the first place. I remember just to intrude a personal story once, uh, sitting very fortunately on a sort of bluff in Kenya, watching the um, uh, the emigration of the wildebeest mm. crossing wow. the river. They would come up to the river, they'd whinny, they'd go back, the crocodiles are waiting. And eventually they would go across and then the crocodiles would come and they would take not a, not just one, two, three, tuck them under the riverbank in their own refrigerator for later, come back for more. And there was a sense in which I felt I should intervene, just momentarily, of course, and then realizing how stupid that was. But it was just a recognition about the reality of a part of life that if predators don't do what they have to do, they die. And the question mark for us, I suppose, is whether we can lift ourselves up above that. Well, right, okay, then let's go to the third section in a moment in which I will talk to you, if I may, about these purely practical, how we live our lives and the practical issues, such as dealing with factory farming, force feeding of foie gras, and so on. Um, I still want to talk about those things, but uh, we'll just have to take a break. And if you want to contribute, please email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk. See you in just a moment. Hello, you're listening to Unbelievable, the show that tries to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. And welcome back to the final debate about animals. Do they have souls? Are they conscious like us? What rights do they have, according to Christian belief? I suppose we've got to a situation in this discussion where we're not sure that they have souls, we're not sure they have rights, but we certainly believe that human beings have considerable responsibilities towards them. Uh, my, my name is Roger Bolton, and my guests are animal rights campaigner and writer Joyce De Silva and Nathan Rittenhouse. Um, welcome back. Uh, let's look at some of the day-to-day dilemmas that we face. Can we, there are one or two about how we behave towards animals, granted that we believe that we have a responsibility towards them. Um, can we take the low-hanging fruit, you might say? Presumably, both of you would think that uh, force-feeding geese for pâté de foie gras is something we should, or in particular the French, should stop doing. Is that your view, Joyce? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I haven't seen it in the flesh, though a colleague of mine has, but I've seen it on film. And, you know, in the last three weeks of their lives, the geese or ducks used for foie gras are kept inside in cages and and every now and then they are force-fed. And so they're force-fed daily the equivalent of 27 pounds of spaghetti, cooked spaghetti. So Daily? Da- daily? Yes. So their livers actually become diseased. So the fatty liver, which is foie gras, is actually a diseased liver. And if you went on doing that ad infinitum and didn't slaughter the animals, they would probably die from liver disease. So it's it, it's a very cruel practice. And I think it actually wouldn't be allowed. The ministry has said that in the UK it wouldn't be allowed. I don't know that it happens in the United States. Um, and there are moves to get it banned in the European Union. So that we would... Do you, Nathan, you would have no worries about banning that, So would you? I, I think, yeah, we can, and I can give the principles. So you ask yourself, what is a goose? 
and what is it made to do? Um, and, and does any of that resemble what a goose is for? So I'm going to put I'm going to put a a, a telos on their teleology on it um, as part of the the consideration for that. So yeah, and like you say, I'm I'm pretty far removed as far as I know from that as a as a practice. I don't know that much about it. Well, let's move on to factory farming then. And um, some people would say, hold on, let's make a distinction here between uh, factory farming where the conditions are clearly appalling and factory farming where they're okay, okay you're, you're putting all these animals under un, cover. They're not able to live as they would in the wild and so on, but it's clean and everything else. Um, are there any circumstances, uh, Joyce, in which you think factory farming uh, is 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 moral? No, absolutely not. Because if you think about animals having a potential to have good welfare, a good state of well-being, that is really unobtainable within a factory farm. Because within a factory farm, you know, the hens will be caged, all the chickens reared for meat will be reared in the thousands. Um, they've been bred to grow incredibly fast, so many of them can't sustain their own body weight and probably about 10% of them will die just in their very short lives, five or six weeks before they go for slaughter. Um, but that loss, that 10% loss is built into the profit calculation of the farm. And, you know, pigs kept pigs have a very strong instinct to use their snout. It's highly sensitive. So they love to dig their snout down into the earth and find roots or insects to eat and so most pigs that you will see in factory farms well in fact all of the ones in factory farms will be kept on concrete sometimes slatted floors which are so that their feces can go through um, and I wouldn't say factory farms are particularly clean either which you did mention but that whole instinct of a pig to root in the soil is completely nullified in a factory farm. And, you know, a pregnant sow will want to build a nest for her to give birth in and to keep her piglets warm and safe. And again, she's on a concrete floor. And you can see them actually, you know, if they're kept in gestation crates, as they call them in America, we call them sow stalls. We've had them banned in the UK. The sow makes repeated sort of down and forward and upward movements as if she was building a nest. But of course, she touches only concrete or metal, so she can't build a nest. So it's a complete, I would say, it's one of the most unnecessary and cruel things that we do to animals. And Nathan, is that your view as well? So I, um, I'm using the vocabulary here that comes from a, an essay by a man named Joel Salatin titled uh, The Pigness of the Pig and Does God Care? Um, and so there, there would, if I go back to my goose example of what is a goose for, what does a goose do? Um, you know, you're talking Joyce about a pig rooting last night, we were throwing tomato vines out of our high tunnel into our pig pen and you couldn't even see our pigs. They had tunneled clear down underneath them and were just wiggling around in there having a big old time. Uh, so yeah, the, the digging nature of the pig is certainly built into it. Here's where I have a, um, a question. And, and Joyce might be able to speak to this. If you speak to somebody who is raising 20,000 turkeys at a time or something, and they've been doing it for 20 years, they will point out to you that the turkey or the chicken that we have now is an entirely different creature than what you think of when you think of turkey or uh, chicken. In fact, uh, my wife and I have some uh, American Dominic chickens, the oldest heritage breed in the United States. 
and they act categorically different than what people in the modern sense refer to as a meat bird. It's interesting to me, we refer to the product as chicken, but when you look at the actual animal, they're referred to as meat birds. And I've raised those on small scale as well, but they don't scratch, they don't forage, they don't look out for predators. Um, modern lane hens, the broodiness has been bred out of them. Um, you know, and so there's a sense in which technologically I have big questions about what is in fact the actual creature that we have in some of these situations. I think, um, so I personally, you know, I'm looking at all the meat in my freezer. So you're saying, Josh, so Nathan, you're sitting, you're sitting, so Nathan, you're suggesting that we have bred or developed animals to satisfy, if you like, just destroying or distorting their original nature so that they become essentially just meat for us. And therefore, for us to say they are, in essence, cows or whatever, is actually to ignore the fundamental change that we've brought about? Is that what uh, yeah, you're you saying? Yeah, don't, you don't find a Holstein in nature. I mean, something that can produce 10 gallons of milk a day. Um, that's, that's a f you, you can say, a, f a phenomenal creation or distortion, however you want to put it. Uh, same thing with a chicken that can reach, you know, a mature weight in seven weeks or even less. Um, these are very modern te technological advancements, if you want to use that word, um, that people would arguably say, look, this is the most efficient way to feed the most protein to the most people. And therefore, you know, within the balanced overall eth ethos of, um, you know, look at the reduction of human starvation and human poverty based off of this. And you can say that's true. But you can also say it's solely dependent on a massive amount of very cheap energy and subsidized feed programs and the environmental side effects of this. So quickly, when we get into large scale agriculture, it's not just the well-being or the consciousness of the animal. Now you're into a moral consideration that goes well beyond just the individual animal itself. Uh, and Joyce, do you see uh, any distinction then between... How could I put it? Let's say a cow that has not been specifically bred uh, or a, a pig to, to deliver food or milk to us. Have they changed their nature? Are you saying we shouldn't have done this sort of specialist breeding and developing in the first I place? I think we shouldn't have done it. And it would be great if we could undo it. But I'm not sure that I totally agree with Nathan because I've seen hens that have lived their lives in cages and been rescued from going to slaughter after a year and a half or so. And they're taken to somebody's, you know, small holding or whatever and let loose. And, you know, at first they're, they're thinking, you know, what is grass? What is earth? Because they've never seen grass or earth. They've only seen their cage. And then it doesn't take long for them to suddenly start scratching at the soil, fluffing their feathers up, spreading their wings, which they could never do in the cage. And, you know, eating from the earth and finding that you can eat from the earth. Um, I'll tell you a story. Somebody told me a true story. He and his wife rescued some hens from cages and they let them loose in their yard. And most of the hens quickly learned to, you know, eat from the earth when corn or whatever was scattered on the ground. But one hen, whenever the corn was scattered, the hen would run to the fence at the side of the yard and put her head through the fence because she thought to get food you had to put your head through the, the bars of the cage to get the food from the conveyor belt so she was kind of mentally disturbed you could say and I just think that is so sad 
But also, if you look at the meat birds, as Nathan said, seven weeks, I think they've got it down to five weeks now from a fluffy yellow chick to two kilogram weight chicken. Um, the grandparent flocks, the breeding flocks for those chickens, because they would go lame and get ill before they even reach puberty at about 18 weeks old, they have to be semi-starved. So they're only fed once a day. So you'll find all the birds flocking to the conveyor belt when the food comes down. In 10 minutes, that food is finished. The birds then have to wait 23 hours and 50 minutes for another feed. And we actually took a case to the High Court in London on this. And the judge, we didn't win the case, but he did admit that those birds were chronically hungry. So the whole thing is enmeshed in the most absolutely horrendous mistreatment of animals. I would say. But how about the, how about the argument that, that Nathan mentioned towards the end? I don't think he endorsed it, but he said it was a serious argument. That if you're dealing with world hunger or people who are very poor and can't eat, uh, you know, some of these advances have made, made it possible for people to eat food that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do and they might starve. And this again, you know, is that old question about whether our whether we have dominion over animals in that way, whether we have we have responsibilities to them, but whether we have a greater responsibility to human beings, our own species. And I think, Joyce, maybe you doubt that. You, you, there's a phrase which I think you've used writing about, which people might not understand properly, or, and I'm not sure I do, which is speciesism. I mean, is that, does that come in, in here? Well, I mean, I guess it does. It's the whole business about we always put our own species first. And, you know, I do too. Um, I gave the example in a book if, you know, I was driving along a road and a child ran out one side and a dog at the other side, I would kill the dog, not the child. So you could say I'm a speciesist. Um, I'd put humans first. But I, I would also like to just endorse some of the things Nathan was saying about the wider view and what you've mentioned, you know, feeding the planet. I mean, the trouble is we've produced an awful lot of factory farmed meat, if you like, and people eat it. People on low incomes, it's cheap. You can get your chicken legs very cheaply in the supermarket, but it's not essentially particularly good food. And what you find is that I think 40% of the maize, the corn in the world, goes to animal feed. And over nearly 80% of the soy that's grown in the Amazon and other parts of South America also goes to animal feed. So when you give all this rich material, which is edible, and give it to animals, you don't actually get a very good return on that. You only get about a third of the return in protein and calories that you would get if you fed it directly to humans. So you could say, because the world is covered in factory farms and they are hungry for food because the animals can't go out and get their own food because they're not allowed to go outside and graze, that by doing that, we are actually taking food out of the mouths of human beings. But Nathan, there is another, but maybe this isn't the right point to, to, to raise it, but if you are a vegetarian or a, vegetarian or a, a vegan in the case of Joyce, um, there is the issue that it raises what happens to God's creation, what happens to cows, what happens to uh, sheep, what happens to all of those uh, animals, herds that, that, that would be no longer necessary, and we don't want to see them starving. We don't want to, we cull deer because they over destroy other things and whatever. I mean, would we be, if we were, would we be faced with all of these 
difficult decisions to say, uh, uh, you know, we were now going to choose between which part of God's creation survives and which doesn't if we were to abandon entirely meat-eating. Well, I, th- I think uh, Joyce is grinning here, and she could probably uh, give us a better history of all the societies that have been vegetarian and seemingly got along just fine. So um, I think we want to be a little bit careful there on on the extreme version of that. But there, back to the sense of, um, well, let, so I want to say two things. One is um, there are animals kept on small-scale homesteads in deplorable conditions as well. So we don't want to make it sound like just because it's not in a factory farm that the animal is treated well. And then I would say there would be a number of people who um, raise animals, uh, particularly dairy on a large scale, who say, I care for deeply and am very much interested in the welfare of animals. So maybe uh, we can say that's a general general truth, but it's not uh, necessarily a universal truth. Um, then we get into the thing, you know, like Joyce was saying about the corn. Um, yeah, <laughs> America grows corn. Our corn patch is about triple the size of England. Um, but all of that corn is not um, edible by humans. We've we've engineered a feed, a corn that humans don't eat. Uh, we burn a third of it as fuel for our vehicles through ethanol. We feed a third of it to livestock. And then through a lot of chemical processes, we figure other ways to incorporate into our plastics and food system. So again, it's, it's part of a much bigger thing. I think though, to come back around and say, I want to look at this ecologically means that we do. I'll give you an example. There's a raccoon eating my neighbor's sweet corn, right? So if I want to eat vegetables, the raccoon is an issue. And so I'm going to check the electric fences and try to keep the... And so I went out this morning and the electric fence wasn't working, trying to keep the rabbits out of the lettuce and the raccoons out of the sweet corn. And the electric fence was shorted out and it was shorted out on a toad. My electric fence had killed a toad. And I came in the house and threw up in my hands and said to my wife, I, I can't win here. You know, um, you know, I'm, you know, is, is eating, you know, sweet corn an okay thing? So that's what I'm saying when there's there's complexity to this, um, that I think humans uniquely are situated to um, wrestle with at times, to give ourselves a little bit of grace, but to also see that um, despite our best intentions, it's not always going to work out as it should, um, but to be mindful of the deer that spend the night sleeping in our yard as well. Well, can we wrestle with the final uh, final question, which is uh, the way we treat animals for sport? Um Presumably, Joyce, um, you would oppose hunting for sport. Uh, the shooting of deer, animals, whatever. Would you, uh, would you make a distinction between doing that for food, doing that for culling a population, and doing it, as it were, for sport? Mm. Or is there, not, is there not a moral choice? Is there not a moral distinction there? Well, I mean, I would prefer that animals weren't killed that way. And I know often, you know, not everybody is a good shot. Um, And, you know, if you see a stag running from hounds or a fox, when they're finally caught, their death may be quick, but their last hour or so of life has been terror and fear. Um, as a... But there are some people who would say, for example, that you, you sneak up on a deer from a distance and you shoot it if you're a good shot. That they, they, Therefore, in principle, that's not wrong. In practice, it may be if you're a poor shot or whatever. And people would say you need to kill. But are you saying that... Well, I was trying to say, would you make a moral distinction yes. between those things, animals being killed, where we think it is, as it were, necessary, and partly to ensure the others survive in reasonable conditions, and killing animals for sport. Yes, I, I do think there's a difference between people who live, you know, maybe people living in the Amazon and they've always hunted local animals to feed their families or people 
you know, in poorer parts of the world who will hunt local wildlife just enough to feed the family. I think there's a difference there from people who, you know, do sport hunting and go out and shoot lions and elephants and things and then pose for happy pictures beside them. Um, I think there's a huge moral difference there. And it's easy for us, Nathan, to say that. I live in a, a small village. Uh, there, You know, there are deer, but there's not much else around. Where you live in, uh, uh, you know, West Virginia, if you were to say to your uh, friends or whatever, you must not go hunting for sport, how would they, how would they respond to that? Yeah, I don't know that... Um... I guess the sport element is there, and certainly you have people who do it in that way. There are TV shows and, and the and the like. But uh, even growing up, I, the culture of if you shoot something, you better eat it uh, was was pretty much ingrained that it was done not out of a. Um, uh, so I guess vainglory would be the the sin there. Is is that perhaps of saying I'm I'm doing something to enhance my image or feel some sort of dominance? And also, I've done uh, interview series with people who. Um, perhaps farm at a factory scale and don't uh, you know think too much of it but then when they hunt feel a profound sense of connection with creation and gratitude um, for it and see that as a totally different thing of, of harvesting an animal in the wild I think secret killing is the philosophical term that you're that you're putting there when there isn't anxiety that precedes the death but I, I just wonder if there isn't a a sense in which if we if we took out for example if we put this moral issue back into the hearts of humans if we took out greed, if we took out gluttony, if we took out covetousness and vainglory and a whole number of other things, would that not radically transform our interaction with a lot of creation and not just animals in specific? And I would say that the answer to that is yes. So I, I see a real opportunity here for Christians to lean into their motivations for what it is that they do. And I see the, the respect and care and um, killing and consumption of animals um, within that uh, possibility, but um, it needs to be done thoughtfully. And Wendell Berry is big on this. I think a heart of gratitude and recognizing that all of us live because other things are dying, asking ourselves the question, um, am I living a life worthy of the things that need to die in order for me to live is a huge part of the, the key Christian message. Um, and so recognizing that that interconnectedness is a, is a huge part. You say the key Christian message, but some people would say, actually, what you've described is a situation where if you look at Native American Indians, um, who they had a very, uh, or many, a very close relationship with animals, they were so grateful, and this would apply, I think, for other civilizations as well, so grateful for what the animals gave them, be it meat, be it uh, big clothing and other things, that they treated the animal in some way as, as a, a great gift and a friend and didn't sort of assert superiority over it. Indeed, you, you find some worship of animals in some ways. So you, there has been in the past quite a number of, of civilizations for whom the, the, the great respect has been there for animals, even at the, because they are the source of life in many ways for those people. It's perhaps an industrialized society that we've moved away from that. Or I'm, I'm now speaking well beyond my knowledge. Do you think there's any truth in that, Joyce? Yes, I, I, I do think there's a complete difference um, because those people were um, hunting animals, you know, for food and shelter and so on um, and respecting them as far as they could as well um, and really feeling a total bond, a sort of brotherhood with them. And I think that is so different from, you know, trophy hunting or factory farming 
um, that it's just a completely order, different order of being. And, you know, I think um, Pope Francis has been very strong on caring for the earth and ecology and so on. And he says we should see ourselves and creatures as, you know, bonded together in what he calls a splendid universal communion. And I think that's rather a lovely way to see it, actually. Well, I kept to last. We've only got two or three minutes left. And uh, thank you very much for the discussion we've had. But I've left to last what, perhaps the next frontier or next line of argument, which is fishing. I mean by that fishing for sport, fly fishing and so on. Um, we have programs on British television which extol the virtues of it. And, and, and in a way, um, the sort of justification is you may catch the fish, but you put it back. But are we now learning... Uh, as what we should have known beforehand, that in the process of catching and putting a barb into the mouth of a fish, we are inflicting pain for our pleasure. Um, how do we? Do you think that's going to become a real issue in the in the future, Nathan? Who the the future is difficult to speculate about sometimes. Um, I don't I don't think so. Only because most people don't have that. There aren't that many people who have interactions with fish. And I think our willingness to inflict pain on other humans and other creatures, even pets, for our own amusement is still a very large part of the human experience. So I wouldn't hold out a, a great de uh, deal of hope of that being um, something that's just around the corner um, for fish. Uh, and uh, Joyce, how about you? Would you be saying, actually, we really should recognize that fly fishing, for example, or whatever, inflicts pain? Well, my father used to go fly fishing. And when I was a child, I used to go with him. And sure enough, you know, there was a hook and the fish was, the trout probably was taken out of the water. My father was, had his own morality. He would instantly kill the trout so it wasn't flapping around on the grass in, in pain. Um, but he was also very careful about only catching as many that day as we would eat or give to friends to eat. Um, and I think... I, some of the, what you said about fishing and putting the fish back, there have been new rules in this country about having gentler barbs so the animal isn't, the fish is not in such pain. But I think actually, apart from fishing, I mean, if you look at fish farming and at the global fish catch, we're talking trillions of individual sentient creatures caught, hauled onto um, the fishing vessels, probably the the bottom of the ocean destroyed in that area where they've been trawled from. And, you know, they die, they kind of suffocate because they're suddenly in air instead of in the water. So it's not a very respectful way to catch God's creatures. It's a very uncomfortable thing, though. I just feel it's one again, one of those areas where we don't really want to face up to the fact that, that, that fish peel pain, but and partly because of that, perhaps we haven't asked whether they do. And increasingly, we science is telling us things we often don't want to hear. And therefore, we are going to have to rethink our attitudes to so much. In other words, it's not just, we can't plead ignorance in the way that we could in the past. Do you think that's true, Nathan? I think one of the, maybe a distinguishing line to help clarify where I'm coming from here, and I live in a phenomenal uh, fly fishing uh, place as well, and, and many people come to do that. It does seem to me that there's a fundamental distinction between 
fly fishing and trolling for fish uh, on a mass scale, and it's this, is that I'm comfortable with um, systems that use animals, that treat them as animals. I think what we're talking about here is our resistance to systems that treat animals as machines. So it's a, a singular uh, input in, output out. Uh, it's a mechanized, we're, and we're not seeing the complexity of what's around them. But for most people who fly fish, um, and, and know and love a lot of people who do, they would say that fundamentally it's not about catching the fish. It's about the walking out into nature, the, the, the gurgling brook, the birds, the time spent in solitude, that there's a whole uh, culture around the experience that has, I think, some moral implication in it as well, and the fish is, is one part of that. Um, and the same thing is true, whether you're, you know, your people have fond memories of hunting with their father or their grandfather and walking in the woods and finding mushrooms and watching the snowflakes. And, um, so there are activities that put us in proximity, I think, to seeing it as not just a, a mechanized or reductionistic sense, but, uh, painting the broader and fuller picture to it. And I think uh, Christians are uniquely, um, situated to have this idea of, of God given right that, um, also has limitations to it. So, um, I hope we can live into that. Do you think that's, uh, Joyce, is that dangerously like saying, well, okay, uh, the benefits for humanity are so great that the fish will just have to suffer? No, I, I'm afraid I don't. Um, I think we should be helping people who, you know, live in difficult situations to grow crops so that they can afford to grow, to help them with water systems so that, that you know, and nourishing the soil so that they can have healthy harvests and not have to rely on, you know, eating cheap chicken or having to rely on cheap fish. But, you know, there's a difference between the small-scale thing that's done to feed your family. I do emphasize that. Um, and I don't want to criticize people who do that. But, you know, the larger the scale, the more the welfare of the animal gets forgotten for sure and that's why the factory farm and the fish trawler and so on well i'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there my thanks to uh, joyce de silva and nathan rittenhouse by the way joyce's book uh, which you uh, which is well worth uh, reading is called uh, or latest book animal welfare in world religion teaching and practice and nathan uh, is co-founder of the thinking out loud podcast which i will now listen to. Forgive me, Nathan, for not having listened to it before. Thank you very much for discussing this. I think we decided on the whole that animals didn't have souls. We weren't quite sure whether they had rights. We certainly think that human beings have great responsibilities towards them. Thank you for listening to us, and please join us the next time. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed that discussion. Do let us know what you think by emailing us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you could leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or Twitter, which is at UnbelievableFE. If you register on our website, then you will get access to all the content on the website, as well as bonus materials such as videos and ebooks, as well as the opportunity to win our monthly book draw. So sign up for our newsletter through premierunbelievable.com for your chance to win. That's all for this week. We will see you next time for more Unbelievable. Unbelievable.